Fauci announcing the strictest vaccine mandate in the country as the Omicron variant spreads. New York City's first in the nation mandate requiring all private sector workers to get vaccinated by December 27th. It comes as Omicron is now confirmed in 20 states, while the Delta variant drives a surge in hospitalizations. Our exclusive inside the ICU being pushed to 200% capacity. Also tonight, Jesse Smollett taking the stand at his trial. What the actor told the jury about the brothers he's accused of paying to stage a hate crime attack on himself. Plus, new details about the parents of the alleged Michigan school shooter. What we're learning about their time on the run. Police interviewing the person of interest whose art studio is where they were arrested. The White House announcing a U.S. diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Beijing Olympics as tensions rise with China. President Biden set to hold a high-stakes call with Vladimir Putin with fears Russia is on the brink of invading Ukraine. Can the president's message halt a confrontation? Richard Engel in the region tonight. Our NBC News exclusive, a new weapon that could forever change the battlefield. And honoring Bob Dole, longtime senator and former presidential nominee. What he told me in one of his last interviews about surviving the wounds of World War II. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Good evening. Reminding we can never take our eyes off the ball when it comes to COVID. The Delta variant, the one we've been living with for months, is the one fueling a disturbing new rise in cases tonight, climbing now in at least 22 states. Delta still accounting for more than 99% of infections, but it's the newer Omicron variant and its worrisome potential driving big changes and mandates tonight. The new U.S. global travel requirements taking effect today as New York City officials announced the most sweeping vaccine vaccination mandates in the country, impacting virtually all private companies. Tonight, we go into the heart of a community under siege with the team coming to the rescue of a health system teetering on the edge. Here's Miguel Almaguer. Tonight with Omicron, now discovered in nearly 20 states, the mayor of New York City is implementing the nation's most sweeping vaccine mandate for all private employers. By the end of this month, those who work in person must have at least one dose of a vaccine unless they qualify for an exemption. We needed to do something bold quickly and get ahead of all of this. With new testing restrictions also implemented today for all travelers entering the U.S., our nation is bracing for Omicron, but already facing a disaster set into motion by Delta. I used to wake up crying because I thought I was going to die. Like 99% of those infected with the virus, Vera Martinez-Ruiz, who isn't vaccinated, likely has Delta. I never thought it would get me, and it got me. It's really scary. Martinez Ruiz is lucky to be alive and just as fortunate to have a hospital bed. At the San Juan Regional Medical Center in Farmington, New Mexico, the ICU is over 200% capacity. More than half the patients in the building have COVID. This is our fifth wave. This is clearly the most severe wave that we've had to endure. In need of a lifeline, this rural hospital is now getting help. An HHS National Disaster Medical Team has been deployed to assist overwhelmed staff. Typically used on the front lines of natural disasters, they're now needed for a growing crisis inside hospitals. For some Americans, the pandemic is becoming an afterthought. 
but that's not the reality on the ground. COVID is still very much here. These are very bad, very sad situations that oftentimes don't have a very good ending. That is most true here in the ICU, where cameras have never been allowed before. All of these rooms are full. All of these rooms are full of intubated COVID patients. Authorities want the public to see how dire the situation is. A lot of the sickest patients that are on this floor won't make it out of this floor. The grim reality of Delta is often overlooked. And for the sickest, the writing is on the wall. Scribbled on far too many doors here reads the words anointed by Father Tim. Patients who've been given their last rites because the end may be near. Boy, Miguel, we are still deep in this. I know as hospitals are suffering under Delta, Dr. Fauci had something to say about Omicron and its severity. What did he say? Well, Lester, scientists say it'll be a few more days until we know for certain, but Dr. Fauci says early indications point to a more contagious variant, but not necessarily one that's more severe. That's good news for those HHS teams that have up to 10 units deployed every month. Lester. All right, Miguel, thank you. Now to the trial of Jesse Smollett, the actor taking the stand in his defense today in Chicago, where he is charged with staging a racist anti-gay attack on himself and lying about it to the police. Ron Allen has late details. Nearly three years after Jesse Smollett first reported he was the victim of a racist and homophobic attack, the former Empire actor testifying in his own defense today charged with six counts of felony disorderly conduct for allegedly faking the attack and lying to police about it. Smollett telling the jury there was no hoax. Smollett seen in this police body camera video wearing the noose he told investigators the attackers put around his neck. After yelling slurs, beating him, throwing bleach on him and saying, this is MAGA country. Prosecution star witnesses, two brothers, aspiring actors, and associates of Smollett, who say he recruited them to stage the attack, paying them $3,500. Abinbola Asadario testified Smollett said he wanted me to beat him up. On the stand, Smollett insisting he paid the brothers for a diet and exercise plan, not to arrange a phony hate crime. Police using images from four dozen cameras to create a sequence of events, including showing the two brothers allegedly using $100 Smollett gave them to buy supplies for the attack. The night Smollett insisting he's innocent. With Smollett expected to be the last witness, the jury could get the case as soon as tomorrow. He faces up to three years in prison if convicted. The city of Chicago is also suing Smollett in civil court for the cost of the police investigation, $130,000. Lester? All right, Ron Allen in Chicago tonight. In Michigan this evening, the investigation of the parents of the suspect in that deadly high school shooting has expanded, with police now questioning a man who gave them a place to stay. His lawyer saying he did not know they were fugitives at the time. Here's Megan Fitzgerald. Tonight, new details about what the parents of the suspected school shooter were allegedly doing when police say they were on the run. Andre Shakura, who police say is a person of interest, now speaking to investigators. James and Jennifer Crumbly were found inside his art studio this weekend. Police say the Crumblies had withdrawn $4,000 from the ATM. Shakura's attorney says his client didn't know they were fugitives, that the couple had asked for a place to stay because they were getting death threats. They came in the morning and that Mr. Shakura left at 5 p.m. and basically asked them to lock up and leave. And they then overstayed into the evening 
and Mr. Score had no idea and only found out the next day. On Saturday, hours after the couple was captured, they appeared in court pleading not guilty to four counts each of involuntary manslaughter. They're accused of disregarding red flags prosecutors say could have prevented the deadly attack, including allegedly ignoring the school's warning the suspect was caught searching for ammunition online and not mentioning their son had access to a gun when school officials showed them his disturbing drawing of a person shot and bleeding with the words, the thoughts won't stop, help me. These two individuals could have stopped it. Defense attorneys say the suspect was not given access to the gun. That gun was actually locked. We've learned a 14-year-old girl has been discharged from the hospital. Tonight, a 17-year-old shooting victim remains in stable condition. Lester. All right, Megan, thank you. Tonight, new tension with China after the White House announced a <laughs> diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics set to begin less than two months from now. Andrea Mitchell has details. When the Olympic flame is lit in Beijing, American athletes will be there to compete. But neither President Biden nor any other U.S. officials will be attending. The White House announcing a diplomatic boycott of the Games to protest China's human rights abuses, including crushing the democracy movement in Hong Kong, threatening Taiwan, what the U.S. calls genocide against the minority Uyghurs, and the recent disappearance of tennis star Peng Shuai after she accused a top Beijing official of sexual assault. Human rights groups wanted a total boycott, as Jimmy Carter did in 1980, when he kept athletes home from the Moscow Olympics after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. Others disagree. Senator Romney, is a diplomatic boycott the way to go? Some members of both parties want a complete boycott, including the athletes. I don't feel that the burden of our international policies should fall on the shoulders of these young people. So let's make our statement loud and clear through not sending diplomats to Beijing. Still, Beijing's response today, immediate and furious, calling it an offense to China's 1.4 billion people. A spokesman saying, if the U.S. is insistent on going down the wrong path, China will take necessary and resolute countermeasures. Despite talk of a new Cold War between the U.S. and China, Washington needs China to pressure Iran against going nuclear and to work on trade and climate change. But the White House is under heavy pressure from both parties in Congress to get tougher with Beijing. Lester. Andrea Mitchell, thank you. In just 60 seconds, the surge at the border and now the Biden administration restarting a controversial policy from the Trump years and the very latest on the sudden death of this year's Kentucky Derby winner. The Justice Department is taking new aim at Texas over the issue of voting rights. A new federal lawsuit announced today accuses Texas of violating the Voting Rights Act by redrawing its district maps to discriminate against black and Latino voters. Texas's attorney general called the lawsuit, quote, absurd. And more news from the Justice Department. The investigation into the lynching of Emmett Till 66 years ago has been closed once again. Till was 14 in 1955 when he was murdered in Mississippi after witnesses said he whistled at a white woman, Carolyn Bryant Donham. The probe was reopened in 2017 after a book claimed Donham recanted her story. But investigators closed it today after they couldn't prove Donham had lied. And a record migrant surge at the border of the U.S. today reinstated under a court order a Trump-era immigration policy that forced tens of thousands of asylum seekers to remain in Mexico. Gabe Gutierrez has more from Tijuana. 
Tonight, just feet from the U.S., hundreds of migrant families are at this tent camp in Tijuana as the Biden administration restarts one of former President Trump's controversial immigration policies. 30-year-old Sabina has been here with her three young daughters for six months. She doesn't know what's next. The Remain in Mexico policy, also known as MPP, requires asylum seekers to stay across the border while their cases are processed. It officially restarted today in El Paso and will soon expand to these other border towns. Migrant advocates say as this policy is implemented, camps like this one will keep growing, causing a potential humanitarian disaster. It's disheartening, it's, it's upsetting, and, and really, quite frankly, uh, for all of the asylum seekers that are going to be put into this horrific system, um, it's, it's, it's horrendous. The Biden administration insists it wants to end the Remain in Mexico program, but that a court order is forcing the Department of Homeland Security to restart it. That court case brought by Republicans who have blasted President Biden's border policies, with illegal border crossings this year soaring to a record high. The reason why we're seeing such an increase in numbers this year is because of the lax border policies and the fact that there was no Remain in Mexico policy in place. The Biden administration says asylum seekers' claims should now be processed within six months. Migrant advocates are skeptical, Lester. All right, Gabe Gutierrez, thank you. There's sad news tonight from the world of horse racing. This year's Kentucky Derby winner, Medina Spirit, collapsed and died today after a workout at California's Santa Anita Racetrack. His trainer, Bob Baffert, said the cause was a heart attack. Medina Spirit's Derby victory came under scrutiny after he failed a drug test, and the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission investigation continues. Dozens of horses have died at Santa Anita in recent years, though the number has been declining. Up next, our exclusive look at a potent new American weapon of war, but is it also making us more vulnerable? We're just hours away from that high-stakes call between President Biden and Russia's President Putin. Tensions are flaring on Ukraine's border with new signs Russia might be preparing to invade. Richard Engel is in Ukraine tonight. New satellite images tonight show Russian forces at the ready near the Ukrainian border. U.S. intelligence warned Russia's Vladimir Putin may be planning an attack on the U.S. ally. U.S. and Ukrainian officials estimate there are already 70 to 100,000 Russian troops near the border. An unclassified U.S. intelligence estimate predicts another 100,000 could be called in for a potential invasion early next year. President Biden has signaled to Putin the U.S. will oppose him. I have been in constant contact with our allies in Europe, <coughs> with the Ukrainians. Analysts expect the U.S. would likely confront Russia with sanctions and not a full war on its border. Though in the past, sanctions have done little to change Putin's actions. Fears of war are growing in Ukraine. Back in April, during another Russian troop buildup, we were with Ukrainian troops who were carefully monitoring Russians on the other side. What are you looking at through this periscope? Uh, it's enemy. Tonight, Putin may be bluffing. He does not want Ukraine to join NATO. And he doesn't want NATO to put advanced weapon systems into the country. Perhaps it's just saber-rattling. Either way, the swords are drawn. Presidents Biden and Putin will have a video call tomorrow. U.S. officials say Russia has been sending troops to the border and also pulling them back to keep the world guessing what it will do. 
Lester. Richard England, Ukraine, thank you. Let's turn out our exclusive reporting on a new weapon in America's military arsenal, a small and lethal drone that changes our thinking about those unmanned aircraft, technology that could also pose new dangers to the U.S. Here's Ken Delanian. Amid the quiet beauty of the Utah desert, a deadly new kind of weapon on display. NBC News got an exclusive look at a so-called killer drone. Yeah, it doesn't fire a missile. It is the missile. This is about the size of a toy drone I bought my 12-year-old a few years ago. The switchblade can be carried into battle in a backpack and launched miles away from a threat. Once a target is identified, the switchblade can find it and kill it in minutes. Launching. Aerovironment, the drone's manufacturer, showed us how an operator can put a switchblade through the window of a truck. Onboard cameras capture the moment before impact. How far away was the switchblade when it took that picture? Uh, about three meters from the target. At about $6,000 each, the switchblade costs a fraction of the $150,000 Hellfire missiles fired from larger military drones. The Pentagon has made deadly mistakes using drones, including in August, when the U.S. military fired at what it thought was an ISIS target, but instead killed 10 civilians, including seven children. Officials told NBC News analysts saw a child in the target area, but the missile had already been launched. The Afghan-born CEO of Aerovironment says their weapon can cancel an attack up to two seconds before impact. You can make decisions while you're flying the, uh, the, the missile in the air as to what to do during your mission. But the development of smaller, cheaper drones, already being used on the battlefield, pose new dangers for the U.S., too. Paul Shar, a retired U.S. Army Ranger, says weapons like these change the game. It levels the playing field between the U.S. and terrorist groups or rebel groups in a way that's certainly not good for the United States. Iranian-backed militias have used similar drones to attack American bases in Iraq and to target the Iraqi prime minister. The U.S. is definitely vulnerable to drone attack today. We need better defenses, and we need them urgently for U.S. troops overseas. A new kind of weapon presenting a new kind of risk, both abroad and at home. Ken Delanian, NBC News, Dugway Proving Ground, Utah. And up next, our tribute to Bob Dole, what he told me in one of his last interviews about the meaning of service, sacrifice, and civility. This is, uh, this is very Bob Dole will lie in state at the U.S. Capitol on Thursday as the country honors the former Kansas senator. In his final message just published in USA Today, Dole wrote about the need for compromise in Washington. Teamwork, he said, is needed more than ever. In 2018, I had the honor of interviewing Dole about his life of service going back to World War II. Bob Dole lost a lot on that Italian battlefield in 1945, left permanently scarred and partially paralyzed, and with the kind of memories that don't go away. My radio man had, was ahead of me, and he had been wounded, and I crawled out trying to get him back in the little ravine, and I got shot, and he didn't make it. He passed away. So I tried, but I couldn't. Saving. But in loss, Dole gained a purpose that animated him long after his decades in Congress and those celebrated runs for president. Pleased to meet you, sir. Hi, what war were you in? It was greeting fellow veterans at the National World War II Memorial. It's where I met up with him in 2018 for one of his last interviews. And you come here pretty much every Saturday. Yeah, I've been doing it for about eight years. And I met thousands of veterans. 
Dole was a major force in making the memorial possible, helping to spearhead funding. A soldier soldier who refused to put an expiration date on public service. Above all, I care about people, and I guess I've sort of latched on to the veterans as a little public service I can still do. He could be partisan, but also remembered tonight as a force of civility. In a statement, President Biden called him a friend whom I could look to for trusted guidance or a humorous line at just the right moment to settle frayed nerves. The last time we saw Bob Dole publicly, he was struggling to his feet to salute the casket of one-time political rival and World War II vet George H.W. Bush. Do you miss politics? Uh, some. It's so polarized today. When I was there... Yeah, we got along fine. Bob Dole was part of a now dwindling generation. Most World War II vets are either too ill to come or they're just not there anymore. A grateful public servant until the end. I've had a great life. I mean, I had a lot of problems, but despite some of the problems, I've had a good life. And the country tonight celebrating that good life. That's nightly news for this Monday. Thank you for watching, everyone. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night. But you were still one of my favorite senators. Oh, thank you. Thanks for watching our YouTube channel. Follow today's top stories and breaking news by downloading the NBC News app. I guess, but I like that. What sounds interesting, Mike, is what we're going to be covering here over the next three weeks. Melchizedek, there's so much information to cover. Okay. I, I, I don't even know what you're going to do. Yeah, it's work it's out be, for you. Yeah, it's going to be three parts. You know, it uh, might as well jump into it because there's just so much material about Melchizedek. And <laughs> the reason there's a lot of material is because there's so many problems. There are so many points of confusion, so many points of ambiguity. So many uh, things you can see in the text and then go down two or three trails and trajectories and really rabbit holes in this case that uh, it, it's a challenge to, to basically just cover it all, much less try to reach any sort of conclusions about a number of things. But we'll, you know, we'll do our best. We'll chop it up into three parts. And I don't think any of them are going to be short, but I know this one's not going to be short. So. In this first part, we're going to focus on Old Testament material. So we're not going to get into Second Temple Jewish stuff. That's going to be part two. And then, of course, New Testament material, part three. But obviously, parts two and three are going to build on this one. And you're going to see, I, I can telegraph this much here, you're going to see how certain, uh, certain elaborations are made on the Old Testament material. And some would even use the word alterations in Second Temple Jewish literature and in the New Testament. The Old Testament stuff is adapted uh, in, in a number of respects by Second Temple Jewish tradition and New Testament. And that's not to say, and we'll hit an example or two today, that, that the New Testament or any, any of this other material is making stuff up. It, it's just that they'll seize on a particular trajectory and then kind of run with it. 
uh, or apply it in, in a different way that, you know, it could be a legitimate application, but you could apply it in two or three other ways too. So there's just a lot uh, here that there is to consider. This is one of those topics that is kind of a vortex. Um, a simple question like who was Melchizedek turns into a dozen other questions, most of which don't have clear-cut answers. And I, I would say, again, it, this is easily one of the most complex topics in biblical studies. Let's just jump into the passages where Melchizedek is actually mentioned. We're going to start with, with Genesis 14. The other one is Psalm 110, but I'm, I'm going to stick here with Genesis 14. And we're going to spend a lot of time here, then we'll pick up Psalm 110 uh, at a certain point. So Genesis 14, 17 through 24 reads as follows, and I'm using the ESV. After his return from the defeat, of course the person spoken of here is Abraham. After Abram's return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, that is Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In other words, the people that Abram had saved. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Honor, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. That's the end of the, uh, the pericope, the little section there in Genesis 14. Now, there are a number of issues that arise just from, from what we read, and really even just a handful of the verses that we read. Each has a bearing on how later literature, Second Temple, Jewish literature, and New Testament material, ought to be understood or how they can be understood. And it has a bearing on whether the other literature reinterprets what's going on here in Genesis 14 in a manner consistent with the original Old Testament passage. Now, this in turn has a bearing on Christology. We'll eventually get there when we get to the New Testament material, but, and that'll actually build on some Second Temple material, too. Since the book of Hebrews links Jesus and Melchizedek in some way, and that, that's a little vague for right now, but we'll, we'll eventually get there and what I say in part three, I hope, will be sort of evident from what we cover in parts one and two. So for our starting point here in Genesis 14, we're going to begin with the name, just just the name Melchizedek. You think, well, what's the big deal about that? Oh, there's there's just a lot going on there. Now, in Hebrew, we have Melchizedek, basically two parts of the name. And I should note, I'm going to try to remember to do this for uh, Brenda, who, who does our, our transcripts, that sometimes academic works will take Tzedek and write it, transliterate it, T-S-E-D-E-Q, or E-K, or they will, instead of T-S, have S with a dot underneath. It's the T sound, T-S combined. And you know, nobody follows the same 
convention all the time. So either either one of those is correct. It's the TS sound. So the name Malki Tzedek. Now in the course of discussing the name, here's what we're going to hit. So just keep these things in your in, in your head. We have to talk about the type of name this is in terms of historical Semitic analysis. We'll talk about what the name means. And we also need to talk about the theology that sort of glommed onto or packed onto this name. And that's going to take us into the issue of Israelite religion. And that in turn is really going to be focused on the second half of the name, Tzedek, because I will telegraph this at, at this point and we'll eventually return to it. Tzedek is a deity name. It's the name of a god, a Canaanite god. And so that is going to factor into what we have here, what we're looking at when we see Malki Tzedek in Genesis 14 and, and elsewhere. Now, many presume that Malki or Malki Tzedek means king of righteousness, since that is a wording adopted in the New Testament. Hebrews 7.2 interprets Melchizedek's name, again, Hebrew Malki Tzedek as king of righteousness. And you can translate it that way, but the Hebrew is actually more flexible than that. Here are some questions to ask as we try to analyze the name. Is the name a Northwest Semitic personal name or not? If not, it might be a royal epithet, that is a title. So do we have a person's name here? Is, is Melchizedek, Melchizedek, is that a personal name? Is, is it actually the name of a person? Or is it a title? Okay, it, it could actually be either. I'll explain why in a moment. Another consideration is if it's not a name at all, again, and if it's a title, is there precedent for that view in the Old Testament where you have something that looks like a personal name that might be a title? If, on the other hand, it is a personal name, it is, is it a theophoric name? or a descriptive name. Now, I need to unpack both those terms. Theophoric names are names that have a, a divine element in them, a deity name as part of them. So, you know, Malki Tzedek. If Tzedek is supposed to be understood as a deity name, then Melchizedek would be a theophoric name. One component of it would be a deity. Um, kind of like Jeremiah, Yermi Yahu. You know, Yahu at the end is the divine name, Yah. Okay. Um, you know, Zedek, Zedek, Yahu. Okay, we, we have all these these sorts of names in, in the Bible that part of the name is is the divine name or some some other deity name. Is Melchizedek one of those, or is it just merely descriptive? In other words, going back to Hebrews seven two, King of Righteousness. Maybe Zedek, that second part of the name, is not a deity name. Maybe it just it's an adjective, and and therefore it's descriptive. My King is righteous, or King of Righteousness. So there's all sorts of things, even with the name, to think about, and all of those things are possibilities. So let's take the name apart, uh, as scholars would do, and start thinking about each of them. So we have Malki Tzedek, two parts. We'll start with the spelling. The New Testament king of righteousness presumes that the name is what is called in Hebrew grammar a construct phrase. That means you two nouns next to each other. There's noun X, and then there's noun Y. So you have an X of Y relationship, this noun of that noun. So in this case, it would be the word for king, Malk in Semitic. And then we'd have the word for righteous or righteousness. So king of righteousness, noun, excuse me, king of righteousness, noun of noun, X of Y relationship. So that's possible. 
Okay, it, it's possible. However, there's actually something that's kind of in the way of this. The first part of the name is Malki. It's a noun, M-L-K, plus a suffix, that little E on the end, the little I letter. You cannot have, by rule of Hebrew grammar, a suffix in between two nouns in a construct phrase. So it looks like the little, that last little letter, that little I letter, it's, it's a yod in Hebrew. That shouldn't be there. It messes up the construct phrase. And if it's not a construct phrase, then, you know, what, what in the world's going on? It, it wouldn't be king of righteousness. It would be my king. There's the noun plus the suffix, malki, my king is righteous, or my king is tzedek, the deity. So which one do we have? You know, is it a construct phrase or not? Now, there's a way to sort of get around this. Uh, there's something called the herek compaginus, which is a, sort of an arcane point of Hebrew grammar and syntax, that in, in most simple terms, the y that, that is a suffix could actually be kind of a you know, again, this is this gets so technical so fast. It could be the vestige of a case system. In other words, it may not be a suffix after all, even though 99% of the time when you have this little Y on a noun, it's going to be a suffix. There are apparent exceptions. And so you might have this little letter in there that messes up the normal construct phrase. It might be okay. It might not be a suffix after all, and you might actually be able to translate it king of righteousness. But odds are... Again, that, that wouldn't be the normative way to understand the phrase. So, you know, what do we do with this? Well, let, let's just go back here and say, okay, we've got two choices where we're at right now in our discussion. King of righteousness. Right now, if, if we just look at the name, that's possible, but less likely. And that means we don't have a, an X of Y, king of righteousness. We don't have that X of Y relationship between nouns. We have something like my king is, fill in the blank, either righteous or tzedek. So we either have a theophoric name where a deity is part of it, my king is tzedek, whoever tzedek is. And again, we're going we're gonna to talk about tzedek as we continue. You either have that situation or you have some description. My king is righteous. It's either an adjective. Tzedek is either an adjective or a deity name. That would be the normative way uh, of reading this. Now let's take the, the second one. My king is Tzedek for a moment. Tzedek is a deity. Very, it's, This is a known deity from Canaanite religion. And of course, Melchizedek is not an Israelite. He's not a, uh, he's not a descendant of Abraham. He is a Canaanite. So if we look at it as my king is Tzedek, and we'll again talk a little bit later about who Tzedek was and how that how, how can that be reconciled with the Most High? Isn't that Yahweh? Well, who's this Tzedek guy? You know? So we have to address that. We'll return to it. We're just focused on the name here. If we take it as my king is Tzedek, then you know we have you know we have something to you know not to worry about, but something to, to consider and, and try to parse. There are other there are other names like this. Okay. There are examples of theophoric names in the Old Testament, as I mentioned. And a little bit of a wild card here. The first part of the name, MLK, that's also a deity name from Canaan. So you, you might actually have two deity names here. You could have my king is Tzedek, or if we take MLK as a deity name, you could have 
Melek or Malk. This isn't the way you, you, you know, we, this, this wouldn't be Molek. Okay, that would be something different. But you have MLK is righteous. So we have an MLK deity known from Canaan, and we have a Tzedek deity known from Canaan. So, you know, what do we do with all that? Now let's take a look at the Old Testament. I'll just give you a couple examples that'll probably, I hope, you know, sort of unravel the, the complexity here. You have names like Malkiel in the Old Testament, Genesis 46, 7, uh, 17. That can be translated, my king, Malki, that's Hebrew for my king, is El. El is a deity name. You could, you know, you could also spell it or have a variety, a derivative, something similar as Malkiah. Okay, we have Ezra 10.31, Jeremiah 38.6. That would be my king is Yahweh or Yah. We also have names like Yehod Sadak or Yod Sadak. That would be the first part of the name, Yeho or Yo. Again, in Hebrew, I, I can't explain why Yo is still a divine name in a, in a podcast, but either of those would mean Yahweh is righteous. Haggai 1.1, 1, 1, Ezra 3.2, you get those examples. And if you're paying attention, you might think, well, couldn't it also mean Yahweh is Tzedek? Yeah, it could. Uh, again, so what in the world are these people in the Old Testament? What, what are they thinking when they take these names? Were they, were they names given at birth? Or are they titles later? Are, do they make theological statements? Are they titles that just sort of telegraph some belief that the person has? And we, and we don't really get the, the true name of the person. You know what's going on here and again all these things are possible with Melchizedek it could be my king you know is righteous my king is Sedek it could be king of righteousness it could be something like Malk is righteous or Malk is Sedek it, it, it could be any of those five things just in, in this one little name uh, another example from the book of Joshua Joshua 10 1 Joshua 10 3 the, the closest example is Adonai Sedek in Hebrew, it would be Adoni, my Lord, and then Tzedek. Tzedek is my Lord, or my Lord is Tzedek. Now, this particular guy in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 and verse 3, is the king of Jerusalem at the time of Joshua, okay, which at the time of Joshua is a Canaanite city. And Tzedek, again, as we're going to see a bit, a bit later, is a, is a well-known Canaanite deity. So it makes sense for the king of Jerusalem at that particular time. Remember, Jerusalem is only going to become the capital of Israel when David conquers it. You know, we're not even near David's time yet. Originally, it was this Canaanite city. And so here you have a king that, again, is this really his name? Is this his name his mom and dad gave him, or is it a title? But either way, we know him as Adoni, my lord, is Tzedek, which would make a lot of sense given in context. Well, if it makes sense for him in the days of Joshua, why wouldn't it make sense in the days of Abram, Abraham to have Melchizedek mean my king is Tzedek, Malki Tzedek, and taken on this, this name of, the, of a Canaanite deity because he's a Canaanite and he's not an Israelite. Now, I, I realize you know, when you get into this discussion, you, know, you, you, you look at this and you go, well, that makes me a little uncomfortable because you know, in Genesis 14, this guy is supposed to be priest of the Most High God, and if his king is Tzedek, you know, Tzedek, then how in the world does that work? 
you know, what, what happened to El Elyon, God Most High, you know, the God of Israel? Who's, who's this Tzedek guy? Again, these are difficult questions, and in today's episode, we're, we're, we're going to have to get into the, those things, but we're, we're still you know, at, the, at the name. So I'm, I'm not done with that yet because there's a lot, there are, other, there are other things to consider here in relationship to what we've already said. Now, as far as, again, Adonai Zedek, okay, just so that you fix it in your mind, because we're going to come back to this uh, more than once, we have in him sort of a, a you know, what some scholars would say is kind of a template example, a, a, a very convenient parallel. My Lord is Tzedek. He's in Jerusalem. That's in the land of Canaan proper. It's, it, you know, it, it's Canaanite territory. Uh, again, Joshua's in there to conquer things, but, you know, he, he doesn't actually conquer Jerusalem because Jerusalem, by the time of David, is still not in Israelite control. David is the one who has to, to conquer it. So we could have a thoroughly... Canaanite context for certainly Adonizedek and very likely Melchizedek. So if we presume Melchizedek is a proper personal name, you know, it's probably Theophoric. It's probably my king is Tzedek. Now, that we can't say that conclusively. It might be descriptive. Um, it might be my king is righteous and then, you know, referring to some unknown king that Melchizedek was, a, you know, beholden to. We, we just don't know. But if we look at at Adonizedek as a, as this sort of, you know, really convenient example, a lot of scholars are sort are sort of steered into the direction because of Adonizedek and Joshua ten. They're steered toward the notion that Melchizedek, and in Hebrew Melchizedek, is a theophoric personal name.
Yeah. <laughs> 